Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out how to take your talents and make change. I'm here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How's it going? It's going to be 100 degrees here tomorrow, so it's going great. How about you? It's going as summery as ever here in Southern California after a very exciting weekend of surprise hurricane. So I'm thrilled to get back to our normal hot, unpleasant weather for August, just because it feels more normal. Um, I'm very excited about this interview today because we have the author of a book that I buy for every child in my life. I feel like my mom and I have bought out several bookstores at times of this book at like periods of my life where, you know, a lot of my friends were having babies. We have Inosanta Nagara, who is a designer and the author and illustrator of A is for Activist. His most recent book, Oh, the Things Were Four, came out in 2020. Welcome, Inno. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. We usually start this podcast with a question about what our guest's political background is, like what kind of household they grew up in, you know, in regards to political action, where their activism kind of began. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I'm 53 years old, so, you know, we're going back a ways, but if we're talking about my family upbringing, I... I did happen, you know, I'm lucky that I grew up in a family that was engaged. My mother is from the U.S. She's, uh, she was, um, grew up in the 60s, was an, involved in the civil rights movement in the early 60s, was first arrested at the Sheraton Hotel in San Francisco um, doing a sit-in there, and then was later involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement um, in the later 60s because she was going to Berkeley at the time. And then my father was a poet, playwright, dissident um, in Indonesia. My mother moved to Indonesia, married him, and um, lived most of her life there. And I was born and raised in, in the early 70s and th uh, through some of the early years of the, or middle years, I guess, of the Soharto regime that my father was protesting against through ways that they could through art. And then turns out that regime ended up going on another 20 years. <laughs> but yeah, I grew up amongst poets and playwrights and artists and activists in, in that world in Indonesia in the early 70s. So I think that had an influence. Yeah, definitely. And did you think growing up that that would then become part of what you would do with your life? Or is that something you came to later? It's interesting. I, I guess I feel like I always felt like that's what you should do. My father actually was discouraging in high school, at least, of me getting involved in things because of the level of danger involved at the time. And so he said, be smart, you know, do things, but don't be you know it wasn't the american way <laughs> of you know say what you believe kind of thing all everything was done very carefully backhandedly through um 
clever ways of criticizing the government and raising awareness, but without just sort of saying what you believe kind of thing. And But that worked better for me when I moved to the U.S. I came here for college. Um, and then I felt like because I grew up under a repressive regime and I didn't know a lot about what was going on in the world, I spent a lot of time studying, learning what was really happening, things that stories that I could not get in school in Indonesia. And then I then some things started happening on campus um, at UC Davis. And I started feeling, okay, I should start going to demonstrations. And and I started meeting people who were involved in, in social justice activism at that time. But still, I was mostly, I was, in, I was into rock climbing, so I was mostly interested in environmental issues. Uh, it wasn't until the first Gulf War in, I guess, 91, um, that Operation Desert Shield started, was building up. And then I happened to go back to Indonesia to visit some friends. And it became clear to me that America was on the wrong side of history. So I came back and went to my first vigil um, at the Capitol in Sacramento. And the rest is history. I guess I started, then I, then I got involved in organizing on campus, did student activism, where I met my future wife and many of my friends and some of whom I'm still, I still live with today. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about where your skills as a designer started to connect with that political work? It was in that period. You know, I, I came to the U.S. to study zoology. And so my, my interest was science. But because I grew up in artistic household, I, I always drew. And my parents were always very encouraging of doing um, artwork. I that came easy to me. So for work, I worked at the bookstore warehouse doing signage and <laughs> doing graphic design work, basically, while I studied zoology. And then when I got involved in student activism, um, I started working for this newspaper called the Third World Forum that was a, a, a university, a people of color university newspaper on campus at Davis doing photography. Um, and then when we started organizing against the war and then later against fee hikes, I found myself being the one that would make the posters and design the newsletters and found myself doing that just more and more until I graduated college. And then I moved to the, to the Bay Area and just ended up doing that full time. So I, I want to ask there are probably a lot of people listening who have to sometimes do graphic design, but it's not something they're trained in or, you know, that, that they think about a lot. So I'm wondering if there are any like basic graphic design principles, you know, obviously people can be better than other people, more skilled in different things, but just basic things. If you're making a sign or something like what, what things should be, people should be thinking about if it's something that they have to do on their own and, and can't afford to, to hire out for it. That's actually one of my projects is I'm trying to put together a, a book on graphic design for social change. So everything from sort of design principles to um, how we organize ourselves as designers and the value of um, visual communications. I guess, you know, fundamentally, the main thing that I focus on these days is the idea of remembering who you're communicating to. Um, I think for a lot of us, when we do graphic design, we want to do what? is exciting to us. And of course you should do that. Um, but sometimes because we're angry, because we're feeling very fist in the air, that's not necessarily the best way to communicate. So throughout my career doing design action and all this stuff, I one of my main guiding principles was to think about graphic design, not as self-expression, but as um, visual communication. So 
that's very broad in practice, but you know, as a as an underlying principle, look at what you're doing and say, okay, is this me going blah, or is this um, actually me trying to communicate something to people that whatever it is, come to this rally or learn or learn about this event or this thing that's happening? Like that's the the question: is are you communicating or are you expressing? There's nothing wrong with expression. That is what artists do, but um, that's not vi visual communication or for the purpose of mobilizing. I think that's such a good segue to talking about some of the work you've done to demystify activism and action for kids. Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up authoring and illustrating these children's books? Like where where did that piece of your career begin and how did it how did this opportunity come about? Um, I mean, it began with the birth of my son, <laughs> my child, because basically I, I live in a co-housing community with four other families, and he was the youngest of eight to be born into our community. And I had, through, so through all those years, I had found myself reading a lot of children's books to the different kids um, in our households. And, you know, as you know, when you're reading with kids, you're often reading the same books over and over and over and over and over again. And some of those good books are really fun to read over and over and over and over and over again, and some of them not so much. Um, and so I I knew that my future was going to be reading books to my child a lot over and over again. And I wanted to find the have the book that I wanted to read to my kid over and over and over again. And our neighbors are architects. They um, they gave us some books about architecture shapes, architect colors, that kind of thing. And I'm like, where's the book? <laughs> that's about what we do in our community we're you know we have activists we have um, community organizers we have teachers we ha have you know people who are engaged in in many different ways and I was trying to find the book that talked about that that I could read over and over and over again to my child and communicate those ideas and share some of our values through the children's books that we read with our kids and since I didn't find one that spoke to all those, I ended up writing my own. So it is a classic story of I just wrote the book that I wanted to read to my kid over and over again. I originally thought it was going to be a sort of a small project. I was going to print just a small run of them, share them with friends, have it be a Christmas present or something like that. But then it turned out that the printing, in order to print a proper board book, you had to do a larger quantity. So Long story short, I ended up printing a few thousand of them and seeing whether or not I could sell them online and see whether um, I had this whole plan with all these loans that I took from personal loans from people in my community that I would, you know, try to pay them off over time. And then I would put it on a credit card eventually after five years. Um, but as it turns out, I sort of underestimated how many other people also wanted this book to read with their kids. And so um, that went very quickly. And now now it's, um, yeah, there's hundreds of thousands of them out there. So I often, when we interview parents, ask them about how parenting has affected their activism. This is a rather obvious example. But I wonder if you could talk about your your books have kind of grown up with your kids. So as your kid has been at reading levels, you know, higher and higher, your books also have. Could you talk a little bit about that and learning about this idea of like who you're communicating to and, and how you communicate differently to a baby versus a toddler versus like a middle grade reader? Sure, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. You know, I, I wrote A's for Activists when my kid was two, and I was reading those books to him, and I wanted to communicate with him in the way that um, that fit his age. You know, um, I always sort of had, but for that book, the idea is there's both a kid layer and a, an adult layer, you know, kids can go back to it as they get older with it. But um, obviously for a two year old, some of the, for them, it's more about the rhythm and alliteration and the colors and looking for the cat kind of thing. Whereas, um, and for the adults, it's about not being bored to death as you're reading to your kid because nothing kills, kills your love of literature more than, you know, your parent falling asleep while they're <laughs> reading the book that they hate reading. So I was trying to make it both fun and interesting and also, you know, accurate <laughs> um, to the issues that, that are in it. So As for Activists was about the issues. And when As for Activists had the success that it did, I didn't get into this to become a children's book author. So I wasn't, people would ask me, oh, what's your next thing? It's like, well, you know, I just happened to write that, but that doesn't, you know, I'm not trying to become an author. And so if the right idea comes up, I will write another book, but I don't necessarily feel like I have to do that just to do another book. Um, but then Counting on Community came about as an idea. Um, even just it started with the phrase, I think. And so whereas A is for Activists is about the issues, Counting on Community is about how we live. Um, and I thought that was a, another area that I thought would be a, useful to have conversations with our kids about. So did that. And then at that point, my kid then was in first grade and you know they're no longer into just abc books and counting books they want stories um and i was like oh, i'm not much of a storyteller really that's not my world you know th that was probably going to be the end of the line for the children's books for me um but then i was out to dinner with some people in the publishing industry and they you know and I was telling the story about what happened when I was a kid um, where I ended up spending the night in the planetarium and they said that should be your next book <laughs> so I tried that and um, and that actually ended up becoming a useful I felt it was a really good story it was a story I was telling anyway it was a story that I had told to my kid and it was a story that it was an opportunity to sort of bring in a bunch of other ideas about art and resistance and colonialism um, the next book was the wedding portrait which again it started with a story that I tell um, and that I didn't really think of it as this was going to be a, something that I you know that I wanted to to write more and more books, but it was an important thing that came up, especially as my kids started getting a little older, this idea of direct action, civil disobedience, these tactics around social change. And, you know, and it happened to be right around when Trump was coming up and, you know, the idea that we are going to have to sometimes break the rules, you know, that, that um, we're always telling our kids, you know, you need to follow the rules. You should do what people tell you to do, your teachers, but you know, social change only happens pretty much ever when some people are willing to break the rules for the right reasons. And so the wedding portrait was, well, it start, stemmed from a, a personal experience. Um, it's really sort of about, about that, the, the idea that um, social change requires tactics that change the game. So then after that came 
M is for movement, which is uh, middle grade, <laughs> highly illustrated because my, my own kid was a bit of a reluctant reader. And so I wanted to make it something that he would enjoy. Um, and it also tells a bunch of stories about sort of how all this stuff comes together. You know, there's the issues in A is for activists. There's how we live and counting on community. There's, you know, colonialism and art and resistance and my night in planetarium there's direct action civil disobedience and breaking the rules and m is for movement is sort of about how it takes all this coming together and all of us operating perhaps in different ways and perhaps not all you know there's so many children's books about activists or you know nelson mandela or martin luther king or rosa parks you know these these great leaders which is nothing wrong with that but not all of us identify with that as kids you know i i was certainly not somebody who saw myself as you know going to be on the podium you know in the on the spotlight mobilizing a lot of people and yet you know and my whole career as an activist um you know i did do direct action civil disobedience stuff but i was that wasn't the part that I loved about it. I felt like it was important to do, um, to put your body on the line when it was important. But I also, those are moments, you know, but the actual, most of my work was on a day-to-day -day basis. It was doing the graphic design for social change. It was visual communications. It was building, you know, the worker cooperative model for my um, design studio. It was um, building our co-housing community. It's democracy in action. Kind of thing. So I felt like it was important to talk about how social change isn't only about charismatic leaders. And then the most recent book, Oh, the Things We're For, is about what are we for? Because that's the other piece of it, is we talk about a lot of the things that we're against, and we do need to fight against oppression. When we see something bad happening, we need to say no. But after having done this for many years, it does get exhausting and it does start feeling like, are we ever going to get anywhere? And the, I think it's very important to also keep one foot in the, in the idea that of what is, what is it that we are actually fighting for? What does the better world look like that we, that we actually believe can happen and um, through very practical things that people are, are doing that are sometimes less exciting and less fight, 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 but more, you know, boring and bureaucratic, but it's what it takes to build democratic life. I think that's so central to why we started this podcast too, is just to sort of help people understand that there are a lot of different ways to participate in a movement that it's not all just, you don't have to be Nelson Mandela to have made a positive contribution. That's exactly what we aim to highlight on this podcast anyway. So yeah, I, I'm glad I, that I you spoke tell. about it. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask about, you talked about using community loans to initially fund the first book project, A's for Activist. And you've talked a little bit about your role in kind of a larger activist community that you're a part of. And like you're talking, you know, you live in co-housing, like you, you're sort of participating in a larger community of activists. What were the kinds of support that were critical to getting A's to activists and the rest of these book projects, like to market to other people? What were the kinds of support that you could have used that you didn't initially get? Or, you know, were there things that eventually came to you, other roles that people played that helped create a, a wider um, market or opportunity for these books? Like what what was the role of community in in these books? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, for AIDS, for activists, you know, funding obviously was part of it. Um, and those were or these small microloans that I took from friends and family. I, 
structured these $1,000 loans for <laughs> from a bunch of different people based on what I had mentioned earlier, where, you know, I would pay it back based on percentage of what I did actually make with this idea that it might be a slow, long process. And then eventually I would um, refinance it and <laughs> pay everybody back. Uh, they would get paid back in five years regardless, but um, turns out that was all somewhat unnecessary because the book did sell very quickly. I think the biggest thing around children's books that I do is for activists, including, and it was sort of the first one, but then I've always carried this through with all my other works, is that I do a lot of field testing. Um, you know, with A is for Activists, I felt like it was important that, um, and this goes back to what I had said earlier about out communication, you know, it was important that it actually was a children's book that children loved. You know, there was, at the time, there was another book out there called Go to Fuck to Sleep, which is, I don't know if you've seen that. It's hilarious. People love it. And it had just come out and I have nothing against it, but that isn't, they're very explicit that that's not a book for kids. It's a book for adults, you know, to enjoy um, and to feel <laughs> their feels about being parents. But uh, I wanted to make sure that people didn't think that A is for Activists was a joke. I really wanted it to work for children. So I multiple layers of prototypes, you know, from just versions that I had just hand, you know, did little sketches and typed up and made little booklets and sent it to various friends who had kids in the age range. I then, you know, as it developed, I would take the feedback and incorporate it and do better and better mock-ups of it and send those out to different and people. Um, I would send out these surveys um, to go with the book for the adults in their lives saying, saying, can you ask your kid what you think of this? What do you like about that? Is there anything that's confusing? That kind of thing. And and actually ask your kids. I don't, you know, the parents will give me their opinion whether I ask for it or not, but um, I wanted to know whether it worked well with kids or not. And then right before Seven Stories Press took over the publishing of the book, because I'd, I'd had sent out the 3,000 that I had originally printed. I did another round because at that point I had a lot more people that I had I had sold it to directly and I had their emails because they had ordered it. <laughs> and so I asked people if they would be willing to fill out a survey about what their kids thought about the book. So we made some adjustments to that. And so it was very important to me that it really worked as a kid's book for kids first and foremost, partially because um, I knew there was going to be a lot of criticism around whether or not this is appropriate for the age, this quote unquote, you know, age appropriateness question. Um, people who know kids, who know um, literacy and, you know, work with, you know, have never have a problem with big words. Um, but, you know, even people that are on our side would sometimes be like, is this really okay for kids to be reading? And they'd, you know, say it's really not appropriate, uh, you know, but it's not really, it's not the size of the words that's the problem, you know, for people, it's the whether or not they feel comfortable talking about those concepts with their kids, whether, you know, the word democracy is not that big of a word, you know, compared to, you know, Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, Fluff, you know, that, Dr. Seuss uses and those words they're okay with. And so if it's meaningless big words, it doesn't get criticized. But if if it's words that have meaning, the problem is not the size of the word, it's the meaning of it, right? And kids, as you know, love big words, you know, especially at that age. They're all about the, you know, the rhythm and alliteration and the, you know, the the feel of words in their mouth. So that's not a problem for them. But 
I think what happens is the adults feel like, oh, I don't know if I can explain this concept or does it feel like, you know, um, too big of a concept for a kid. Um, so that that was the, um, I wanted to make sure that that whether or not you felt comfortable talking about democracy with your kids, you know, for me, that was never a problem. I would say, you know, our household is not a democracy. <laughs> Just kidding, but they they do uh, they do eventually uh, uh, demand democracy. the um, The important thing was that it, that the, the that this was engaging and entertaining to the kids, and that it's not just sort of like me saying the things that I want to say for the purpose of feeling good about, oh, I'm talking, you know, about big issues with my kids kind of thing. Like, um, if they're actually bored by it, then it'll, that would have been a complete waste. So anyway, the, I, I've, I've continued that, uh, that practice, like with them as for movement, I actually, because I had been going to some classrooms, I was able to share that with, you know, a whole classroom of sixth graders to get their feedback on it. And so that kind of thing. And it was very helpful because there are things that in my mind were very clear. And I realized that, that even like simple things like the term minister in Indonesia, minister is like a government minister. Um, in the U.S., a lot of kids in certain in the demographics, for them, a minister is a religious minister. And I was using the term minister without explaining what I was talking about, and that that was very helpful to get that kind of feedback. So, in the with your other hat, the the graphic design work that you do, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about being intentional about the clients you work with about the messages that you do you know what what that looks like for you so with graphic design i I sort of fell into it because it was something that i could do um and i found it to be useful as far as activism goes and then when i first moved to the bay area um you know i was just basically trying to make a living so i was freelancing um you know so i was working for cafes and that kind of thing but i was as you know preferring to work for people who were doing things that i cared about and like global exchange was one organization at the time that i was working a lot for um the old wives tales bookstore on valencia was another place you know so like i was working for people that i was interested in um, and then I, I then ended up working at Inkworks Press, um, which is a worker-owned co-op union print shop that in Berkeley that had been around since 1973. And it was uh, originally built as a movement print shop um, with people from representing different organizations, you know, the different uh, segments of the movement at the time, you know, the New Left, the American Indian Movement, the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, like, uh, so they had different, they had people from different organizations, you know, because at the time, um, this idea that freedom of the press belongs to those who own one was very real because it was very, very hard to get things printed at, at commercial print shops. And so they built their own print shop, basically. So I worked there for um for eventually seven years but i was doing graphic design desktop publishing and i started working um, on the side trying to bring in projects for organizations that i cared about so that was already sort of the base um clientele for inkworks but then i started working for project underground which was uh oil and mining um, watchdog group um which where i started 
sort of developing my, my, what you'd say is my sort of, you know, guiding philosophy around this stuff. Um, the idea that um, being very clear that a big, uh, what was important was that I was working with groups on the ground who were actually engaged in um, activism and rather than me just being the artist expressing myself. Um, so I, even most projects, even ones that I was in, initiating, I would start by first contacting the groups and saying, what's the useful thing to say? What's, you know, what what's the tool that would actually be valuable for you? Um, you know, whether it's a postcard or you want t-shirts or, you know, you know what, what's, you know, have the messaging um, be determined by and filtered through the people who have boots on the ground who are actually doing the activist work. Because one of the things that I had discovered or it was very clear on because I live with a lot of people, you know, who um, were working in activism for a living, and and you know, my own activism is when you get filtered through the media, your understanding of what's going on, for the most part, you're wrong. <laughs> so you need to, you know, it's very it's very important to to have these filters, the the actual people who are doing the work, um, and so this is sort of where this idea became sort of gelled for me um, that, you know, the other side spell spends billions of dollars every year on their visual communications. The advertising industry is that, right? The advertising industry and the, um, the right-wing foundations spend huge amounts of money every year trying to convince people that they need things that they don't need um, and trying to get us to essentially vote against our own interests you know that we were we were constantly fighting for th you know we, when you would pull people on what do you want you know do people want health care do we do people want you know people do want that stuff but then when it would actually come to vote we'd lose you know and so the question is why is that it's you know it's because they are throwing um, huge amounts of resources at confusing um, people and getting us to go against our own interests. And a big part of that is visual communications, right? This is what, uh, what they are doing on their side. My theory is that we don't have to match that with the same amount of money and, um, and access that they have with television and now through the internet, um, because what they're doing is pushing a boulder uphill. And all we have to do is invest enough to dislodge it so that's where for me the idea that visual communications is important it's uh you know we live in a society that while we shouldn't judge a book by its cover the reality is you know we are a very visual species and we tend to make decisions based on on how we um connect with things both visually and communication wise um and so it's it is actually a, to be engaged in this battle for hearts and minds. Um, you actually have to be engaged. Um, you can't just um, be right. <laughs> um, and that was part of it is, you know, we do have, there's plenty of books. There's plenty of good solutions. We had, you know, all this stuff, that work has continued to be done. And a lot of it has already been done. But the part where we're, where we struggle, I think, is at actually turning the tide.
Can you tell our audience then how they can support your work, where they can find your books, you know, if they can find you online, anywhere that would help them connect to you? Sure. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on, I have a pretty robust online presence and my, my books, I would say, you know, buy them from your local independent bookseller. A lot of booksellers have struggles stocking all these books because there's a number of them. So the easiest thing to do is to either call them or just email them and they can usually get it to you, you know, almost as fast as Amazon. We'll put links in our show notes so people can find things that way and through Bookshop. You know, thank you so much for speaking with us. This has been really great. I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, think that my kids will love your books. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.